Hey guys, before we get started with today's show, I wanted to tell you about an upcoming event that Grace and I are really excited about. Have you binged every true crime show you can find? Have you gotten tired of rewatching the same crime films? Then you need to check out True Crime Film Fest. TCFF is set to be the first and only film festival in the United States dedicated to true crime stories. Taking place in Atlanta, Georgia in January 2022, the festival will showcase short and feature films, both documentary and narrative, as well as panels presented by true crime podcasters. In order to make this first-of-its-kind event a reality, the TCFF team needs your help. Please consider making a pledge to their Kickstarter. There, you can take advantage of many exciting rewards, including virtual passes so you can enjoy the films from anywhere. This festival can happen without your help. Their Kickstarter campaign closes on April 15th. Help the TCFF team screen films that will expose the truth behind real crime and aim to bring justice to victims. Please visit TrueCrimeFilmFest.com or follow their Instagram at at TrueCrimeFilmFest for more info. Thanks, guys. Okay, now to the show. I have a theory that Robert Downey Jr. is always playing Robert Downey Jr., but it always works. Like the character he's playing, you're like, yes, that is Robert Downey Jr. playing Robert Downey Jr., but I love it. This is so crazy. I watched this cooking show where he was just there eating the food. He had no part in it other than just hanging out with friends and he was talking. His voice was totally different. You know that show Chef? Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. He's in it because it's all the guys from Avengers. Yeah. And his voice is so high and nasally. Either he was sick (laughs) or he is really sounds very, very different. (laughs) Hi, everyone. I'm Bolton. And I'm Grace. And welcome to Crime Scenes, a true crime movie podcast. All right, guys. So this is part two of our recap of the movie Zodiac. So if you have not listened to part one, stop and go back and listen to our part one recap of Zodiac or else this is not going to make any sense because we're picking up right where we left off. The last thing that happened was the attorney Melvin Belli received a letter to his house, and this was around Christmas time of 1969. The police believe that this was the actual Zodiac that did send this letter because it had the second piece of victim Paul Stein's shirt included in the letter, and it has blood on it. But there have been a couple of fake Zodiacs that have come up before this, including one that called into a local morning show asking for Melvin Belli to be there so he could talk to him. Ultimately, it turns out that this guy is a fake. It's a person in a mental hospital. So we're still getting some real Zodiac letters, but we are getting some fake ones and some people claiming to be the Zodiac that are not, as well as what we'll soon see are going to be some fake claims of responsibility by the Zodiac for crimes we don't think he actually committed. Okay, starting part two. Zodiac was my job. It's not yours. He's still out there, Dave. Killing is his compulsion. It drives him. It's in his blood. Jeez. What? Squirrels. This is the Zodiac speaking. I have a gun. I can give you a lift to the service station. Do you always go around helping people in the night? I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. Are you sure there's nobody else in the house? After we see Melvin Belli, we're actually going to go to another scene that's going to appear to be another Zodiac murder or incident. 
This is on March 22nd, 1970. And we see a woman driving a car and she's got a baby in the car. This was Kathleen Johns. And she was driving from San Bernardino to Petaluma, California. That's in Northern California. And she has someone behind her flashing their lights and they're trying to get her to pull over. She can't figure out what it is. So she pulls over and a man comes up to her and says, I uh, didn't mean to scare you, but your uh, right rear wheel is loose. Really? If you like, I could tighten the lugs up for you. Uh, if you don't mind. Well, you can't be too careful. And he's back there doing work on her car. And then he says, you're good to go. So he drives off in front of her and she drives and starts going. Out of nowhere, her whole tire completely falls off. So whatever this guy did, he basically just made her tire fall off. He stops after he sees that she has no tire. Are you okay? Yeah. Yeah, we're fine. Must have been worse than I thought. I can give you a lift to a service station. Okay. She gets in the car with this man and she's got her baby and he kind of is put off with the fact that she has a baby. I didn't know you had a baby. Oh, is that okay? The more the merrier. And the movie doesn't show this, but she was also very pregnant at the time. I believe she was eight months pregnant. So they start driving. Now in the movie, they pass one gas station and she says, I think we just passed a filling station. It was closed. And they keep going. And then very quickly, it was like a matter of a couple minutes of being in that car with him. He says, before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window. What actually happened was they were driving in the car together for about 90 minutes. He was put off by the fact that she had a baby. He did not like that. And they passed several gas stations. And he'll either say it wasn't open or if she points out that they've passed a gas station, he changes the subject. In the movie, we do not see how she ends up getting out of the car, but it fades to black. And the very next scene is this woman in the street. She is frantic. She's on the side of the road. She flagged me down. What happened to her? She said she jumped from a car. I found her like this. What? What is it? Son, it'll be okay. Tried to kill me. My baby! She doesn't have the baby with her, so you're like, where the fuck is the baby? (laughs) And a truck driver has stopped and a woman has stopped, and they're trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And Mm -hmm. she basically says that this man had her in the car, and she managed to get out, and she thinks it's a Zodiac killer. Kathleen John's description of what happens is kind of disputed depending on what you're looking at. It's an agreement that they get to a stop sign and she gets out of the car at the stop sign. What's not clear is at one point she says that before she got out, he had threatened her. But at other parts, she says he didn't and she just got out of the car because she knew he was never going to stop. Then Mm -hmm. at other times, she talks about how when she did get out of the car, she started running for the field next to the road and he actually got out and started following her. And he did not stop following her until that that truck came by and he thought he might get right. caught so he drove off but in other reports that did not happen she just got out of the car and he drove off whatever yeah. happened the way she was found was true that a truck driver did stop and she was panicking and saying that she had been kidnapped mm-hmm. ultimately they went back to find her car and the car had been torched this is true in both the movie and the story 
This is just an example of he took responsibility for a lot of things that either it's doubtful he did or we know for sure he did not do. And that's explained to us in kind of the next few scenes. We get a montage of four letters, all presumably from the Zodiac Killer, and they come in the span of three months. The first of these letters, letter number nine, had a 13-character cipher that said, my name is, and then 13 characters of ciphers. That has never been solved. So we don't know what that means. This is the Zodiac speaking. By the way, have you cracked the last cipher I sent you? I'm mildly curious as to how much money you have on my head now. I hope you do not think I was the one who wiped out that blue mini with a bomb at the cop station. The next one was a 32-character cipher, and it was included with a letter that had a map of San Francisco, and people thought that maybe it had something to do with the map. So that's known as the map code letter. This is the Zodiac speaking. I shot a man sitting in a parked car with a 38 Zodiac 12 SFPD 0. The map coupled with this code will tell you where the bomb is set. You have until next fall to dig it up. Then we get a letter in July. So this is July 24th. This is about four months after the Kathleen Johns incident. And he is claiming responsibility for the kidnapping of Kathleen Johns. This is the Zodiac speaking. I'm rather unhappy because you people will not wear some nice Zodiac buttons. So I now have a little list, starting with the woman and her baby that I gave a rather interesting ride for a couple of hours one evening a few months back that ended in my burning her car where I found them. And then we get another one about two days later, July 26th. And that is his 12th letter. After we get this span of letters, we see Paul Avery and Robert Graysmith. And they're back in the bar talking about Zodiac. And Robert Graysmith is mad because now it's been determined that the Chronicle is not going to publish any more of his letters. This is what they say in the movie, but they actually do publish a few more of them. However, Paul Avery is saying that the Zodiac Killer is full of shit, and he is going to explain to him why. Welcome. Please put your stuff down. You're going down five rows left. Looking for the Modesto B from March. I'm going to stand here and attempt not to vomit. Left. What am I looking for? Kathleen Johnson. And we learn that even though the Zodiac has taken responsibility for Kathleen Johnson's kidnapping that happened back in March, the day after that incident happened, a different newspaper had published a story on Kathleen Johns with all of the information that was in the letter. Okay, look at this letter again, the part about Kathleen Johns. Tell me what facts he gives. A woman and her baby abducted. Mm-hmm. Fact. Uh, uh, the car on fire. Okay, now. Look at the article from the B. Um, See it yet? Everything in the letter already appeared in the article. And he's done it before. The other mm-hmm. thing is, another letter was sent where he claimed responsibility for killing a cop. And we know that's a lie because shortly after that police officer was killed, they had a guy in custody and charged him. He ultimately was convicted. Officer Richard Radatich shot sitting in his car. So he had claimed that he shot someone in that car. Mm-hmm. A couple days after this article came out, the police already had somebody in custody. Zodiac didn't do it. I think the point of showing the Kathleen John scene is to show that scary things were happening outside of the Zodiac killer, but people were panicking and they were automatically assuming that it was the Zodiac. And a big thing, too, I think you're going to start to see a pattern of is Kathleen Johns was convinced that her kidnapper was the Zodiac killer. But this was also after his name had been in the news so much. It starts getting hard to tell if people's memories are what they remember or are they confusing their memories with what they're seeing on the news? Yeah. 
We also see that the officers in this case, Toski and Armstrong, they're hitting a dead end and they don't really know what to do about it. We see them sitting at the corner of Washington and Cherry where Paul Stein was murdered and it's the one year anniversary of his death. And they're talking about how since that July letter, they really haven't heard from the Zodiac Killer since then. They say they've heard nothing. That's not exactly true. They did get a letter on October 5th that was supposedly from the Zodiac Killer. It was called the Pace Card Letter. The thing is, it wasn't written out like all of Zodiac's other letters. It had typed words pasted onto it. Mm. So it was sent to the FBI like all the other Zodiac letters were, but I do not think it was seriously believed to be a Zodiac letter like the rest of them. Gotcha. Then it's Halloween, which is my favorite holiday, but this was (laughs) fucking terrifying. Can you imagine? I just, and okay, so this is a great scene because it just shows Robert Downey Jr. as Paul Avery absolutely panicking. Yeah. It is October 27th, 1970, and nothing has really come out about the Zodiac. Everybody's kind of laying low with it. And Paul Avery gets a letter addressed to him that's sent to the Chronicle. He opens it up. Oh, man, it's not a piece of bloody shit. Sir, fuck! Oh, fucking crap. And it is the most well-put-together Halloween card, but also so terrifying. It is from the Zodiac Killer. It has a little mm-hmm. skeleton on the front. It tells him, have you missed me? And it says, I feel it in my bones. You ache to know my name, and so I'll clue you in. But then why spoil the game? Happy Halloween. And it has a piece of Paul Stein's bloody shirt in it. This is the third piece of shirt that we have gotten. Paul Avery immediately says, Dave, I want a gun. I want a gun. I want permission to carry a gun. (laughs) And it is true that Paul Avery did ask that the San Francisco PD issue him a gun so that he could carry it. And they did give him one. Paul Avery's life is nuts. This is not in the movie. This is just extra. Paul Avery gets a gun like he wants. And then he's driving on the street one day and he sees two guys getting in a fight where one of these people is going to stab the other one. And he is like, oh my God. So he stops his car, gets out of the car and he points it at them saying, leave this man alone. Like he was about to get stabbed. What ended up happening is the person with the knife ran away. Police are called and Paul Avery almost gets in trouble for having a gun. (laughs) And he's like, I was just trying to help. So after that incident, he gives the gun back. But for a time, Paul Avery was issued a gun. We also see kind of a funny scene where Paul Avery is shooting the gun, the gun range, and he's wearing a button that says, I am not Paul Avery on it, which was a real thing. Reporters were walking around with buttons that said, I am not Paul Avery. And Paul tells Robert Graysmith, who's with him at the gun range, that he got a tip about something in Riverside and he's going to go there. Leads come out of the woodwork. This one guy, down. And it's not clear if Paul Avery really got an anonymous tip or if he just actually went down to Riverside and did some investigating on his own. But around November 13th, he does get some information that the Zodiac Killer may be linked to something in Riverside. And in the movie, what we see is Paul Avery in classic scary movie form going to a dark abandoned warehouse to get this information. At the same time, Robert Graysmith is going on a first date with a woman who is ultimately going to become his wife, and her name is Melanie, and it is the world's worst first date I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> He's there late. How late am I? It's just a few minutes, really. I just got here myself. 
the second he gets there, he's like, oh, my friend is going to get an anonymous tip on a murderer. To which Melanie is like, well, that sounds dangerous. And he's like, oh, shit, that is dangerous. You were correct. (laughs) He immediately is like, do you have any change? I need to make a phone call. So he's taking her money to go call someone. Yeah. Do you have any change? Oh, wait, no, wait, hold on. No, that's a penny. Um, Do you have to make a phone call? Yeah, you know, when you were saying that the that the Zodiac... When you said it was dangerous, I just thought that it, it is dangerous, and it's... Stupid? Stupid, and I just thought that I should call his wife and just see if she's heard from him. Apparently, she's somewhat amused by this because somehow the date continues, and they actually end up going to Robert Graysmith's house, waiting for a phone call back from Paul Avery to make sure he's still freaking alive. <laughs> But Paul Avery really does get information, whether he got it himself or from an anonymous source. And it has to do with a murder that occurred way back on October 30th of 1966. And the victim was a woman named Sherry Jo Bates. And Sherry Jo was a college student. And on this day, she was going to the library. And at the time, some witnesses had stated that there had been a person that had been lurking around outside the library, supposedly watching her. And it looked like at one point they even had spoken to each other and exchanged pleasantries. However, she never got home that night. What ended up happening was that she was found stabbed to death. And it was on this gravel path between two houses. And it was near the library where she had initially been. And there were some footprints near that area as well. And this is again where we get that the shoe print was from a type of shoe sold only in military outlets. They think it's someone in the military. And the thing that tied this to the Zodiac Killer, aside from the military shoes, was that one month after Bates's murder, there were two two identical typewritten letters that were delivered to the Riverside Police Department and the editor of the Press Enterprise, which was a local newspaper. And in both those letters, they described in detail the scenario of how Bates had been lured from her vehicle and murdered in the same way that the Zodiac Killer would describe how he killed his victims. And then later, on October 30th of 1967, the Enterprise printed a further update on the Bates murder. And the next day after they did that, both the police and Sherry Jo Bates's father received handwritten letters from an unknown person where they had scrawled the message Bates had to die and there will be more on a single sheet of paper. And then at the bottom of both of those letters, they couldn't really read it, but they think that it was signed either with the number two or the letter Z. So basically Hmm. the information that Paul Avery got was linking this to the crimes of the Zodiac Killer. And he touched base with the Riverside Police Department and they wanted Sherwood Morrill to compare those handwritten letters from both the police and Sherry Joe Bates' father to the Zodiac letters. So on November 16th, 1970, we have Paul Avery and one of the Riverside Police Department officers requesting that Sherwood Morrill compare that letter to the Zodiac letters. Ultimately, Sherwood Morrill determines that they are written by the same person. And after he gets that, Paul Avery publishes two articles, and there are long articles explaining that this Riverside killing back in 1966 are tied to the Zodiac killer. He does one on November 16th, and one on November 17th of 1970. Then on November 19th, the Riverside Police Department invites the other agencies that have Zodiac-related killings to their offices to have a secret conference. They conveniently forget to tell all of these officers that they are also inviting Paul Avery, and they've been talking with Paul Avery this whole time, and that is how he's gotten the information (laughs) he's put out to the media. How did Paul Avery get his hands on the exemplars? I gave them to him. We talked on a phone the other day for about an hour, and I told him you were going to be here. You, you told him we were meeting? Yeah. 
And there's a big moment in the movie where Dave Toski and Bill Armstrong get extremely mad at Avery for publishing this stuff, tell Avery they're not going to give him any more information about these murders to publish because mm-hmm. he has made this manhunt go from Northern California to Northern California and Southern California because Riverside is in Southern California. Dave, I don't want to talk to you right now, Paul. Just trying not to do my now. job. Oh, oh, really? Well, now I can't do mine. We're already screwed up the amount of tips we got on this thing, and, and you've just freaked out the entire state. I've got Napa, Vallejo, and DOJ looking at me sideways, and Riverside's telling me I'm on a snipe hunt. Jesus, Sherry Joe Bates was a gift. The reality was they were not that mad at him. Toski said he got along well with Avery. He never saw him to do anything shady. He was surprised that he was going to the secret conference at Riverside. And so this little incident never did happen. But what did happen is Riverside was extremely not helpful. They had a guy that they believed did these killings and they were very tunnel visioned that they did not believe this was the Zodiac Killer. Even though later their own district attorney in Riverside would say your case for this other person is not good and I will not take that. And the DA never did charge that person with any murders for Sherry Jo Bates. Ultimately, nobody ever was. Mm -hmm. The problem with the handwriting sample that Sherwood Morrill compared to the Zodiac Killers is only three letters did match. It wasn't all of them. It was just three. But apparently that was enough to say that it was him. And then the other issue is the Riverside PD is saying that their case is still open. They're not going to share open cases. They have a lead and they ultimately never really do. They're never really helpful in that and nobody is ever convicted or arrested for that murder. But basically what this brings to us at this point is that it's expanded the Zodiac's activity to much earlier than they thought and to all over California. And what this does in the movie is it means that their range of suspects, Dave Toski and Bill Armstrong's, has just expanded significantly. And you see them talking to all these different people about all their different ideas about who the Zodiac killer might be. Only a little rat bastard like Andre could have done something like cut off all the victim's hands. Zodiac didn't cut off any of the victim's hands. Are you sure? Yes, sir. Travis and I worked here side by side for 10 years. His foot gets crushed in an accident and the killings begin. Coincidence? I don't know. You're a cop, man. Do the math. Have you considered the killer might be Paul Avery? Frequently. And then we get them finally talking to a guy, and his name is Don Chaney. And this Mm -hmm. is finally when the movie comes to a pause, and we're talking to one of these people that suspects someone seriously. Before we get into what Don Chaney has to say, he is in Southern California. He's in Torrance, California. And they talked to him on July 15th, 1971. About four months before that, there had been a Zodiac letter written to the LA Times, and it claimed responsibility for the Riverside killings. And the thing Mm -hmm. about this letter is, similarly to the legit Zodiac letters, it seemed that he knew information that nobody else did. So it was less likely that he were to be lying in this letter. Don Chaney sees this letter and it immediately makes him remember about a guy he used to know, a guy named Arthur Lee Allen. And that is who he is talking to the police about at this moment in the movie. And he is explaining to them that this was an old friend of his he's known for about 10 years. He also knew Arthur Lee Allen's brother. And basically this guy was weird. They went to college together. They would hunt together. But he had weird fascination with hunting and death to a point that it almost disturbed him. The conversations would always start with him wanting to write some sort of science fiction book. Then it would turn to like hypotheticals of what if I did this? Then it started turning into fantasizing actually doing acts. And it would include things like instead of hunting animals, hunting men because animals were getting too boring. Drinking Coors, getting the load on. Starts talking about hunting people. Like that book. Says how you can put a light at the end of a gun to use as a sight in the dark. He said that. Yeah. 
He talked about how if he were a murderer, he would murder at random so that the police could not determine what his motive was and that he would go shoot people in lovers' lanes. So I asked him, how would you get away with it? And he said it'd be easy because there'd be no real motive to the thing. He said that he would mail letters to the police and the media to throw them off. And he said that he would refer to himself as Zodiac. And he said he'd write letters to the police and call himself Zodiac to mess with them. He liked messing with people. You're positive he said Zodiac? Yeah. I thought it was a stupid name, so I told him. He got up all upset and said, I don't care what you think. I thought about it a long time, and that's the name I'm going to use. Ultimately, the mm-hmm. last time they had a conversation about this happened on New Year's Day, January 1st, 1969. And Don Cheney says it could not have been any later than that because I moved to Southern California for a new job. And that was the last time I saw him. I specifically remember seeing him on that date. So if you're doing the math on this, January 1st, 1969, this is right right after the first murder of Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday. But it's still before we have any letters saying this is the Zodiac speaking, any symbols of the Zodiac, before we have threats of any buses being shot at, and before we have any other Lover's Lane murders. So basically, he has just given us the entire plot of what our killer has done thus far, and they are very interested in it. And you see Dave Toski get a little suspicious of this. Like, this is almost too perfect. This is my problem. This this guy... Arthur Lee Allen? This guy Lee just lays out his entire evil plan to a fishing buddy on New Year's Day. I don't know. He's angry. He's uh, been drinking, been thinking about it for a while. I can buy that. So why didn't Cheney contact us sooner? He checked. He did. First recorded contact with the police department about Allen was uh, in Pomona, January 10th, 1970. He just got lost in the shuffle. What the movie does not tell us is that Don Chaney, although he hadn't seen Arthur Lee Allen in a long time, he had a little bit of a reason to want to ruin his life. Arthur Lee Allen, we learn through a criminal background check, is a pedophile. He used to be a teacher at an elementary school and he got fired for touching kids inappropriately. And there was a specific incident between Don and Arthur Lee Allen where their families were together. His kids were there and his little girl told him that Arthur Lee Allen touched her. And after that, Don Chaney Uh. still associated with Arthur Lee Allen, but he never had his family around. Mm-hmm. That is a really good reason to want to absolutely fuck someone over if they touched your kid yeah. inappropriately. And Robert Graysmith in his book, he tries to write it off like it happened a long time ago. And you actually see in the movie that Don Chaney, when he is talking to the police, there's another guy sitting there with him. His name is Sandy Penzarella. That was his friend that convinced him to come forward. And in Robert Graysmith's book, he says that Sandy Penzarella actually clarified to the police that he had told him about that incident a long time ago. And that didn't seem to be what the issue was. He didn't think that this was a revenge type thing. And that being said, Don Chaney did go up to Washington to a third party, basically, and got a polygraph test and he did pass. But polygraphs, they're not admissible in court. So who knows if that means anything. But they do get interested and they start to kind of investigate him more. One of the things they ask is, can Don Chaney get a handwriting sample from Arthur Lee Allen? And the problem is he hasn't seen him in a really long time. He's got a family. He says, I'm not going to go out of my way to touch base with this dude if I haven't seen him in that long. So they can't get a handwriting sample from him, but they do end up getting one from Arthur Lee Allen's former employer, Valley Springs Elementary School, where he had been fired. They get a sample. They take it to Sherwood Morrill, our handwriting expert. And Sherwood is the bearer of freaking bad news because he says it does not match. 
despite this, this isn't even at the part where they're going to give up or they're getting frustrated. Even though it doesn't match, they're like, we should still talk to him. We should still try and just see what this guy does. So on August 4th, 1971, they contact the Vallejo PD because Arthur Leon is living in Vallejo. Vallejo has a case. They don't want to be stepping on toes. And Dave Toski, Bill Armstrong, and the Vallejo PD officer all go and they meet with Arthur Lee Allen at his work. And surprisingly, despite the fact that he is a pedophile, he has a pretty good job as a chemist. And they tell his boss, don't tell him that we're coming here. And so it's at this point that we meet Arthur Lee Allen for the first time. Mm-hmm. And he is played by John Carroll Lynch. John Carroll Lynch is in my favorite movie, Fargo, as the supportive husband of Margie. So I have a really hard time seeing him as a bad guy, but he does a really good job. And I'm actually very scared of him in this movie. (laughs) So we meet Arthur Lee Allen and he is a big dude. And I want to point out now there's a discrepancy with Robert Graysmith's explanation of the Zodiac Killer's height. I just feel like it's a good time to say it now. Mm -hmm. Some of the first descriptions of the Zodiac Killer had him at around 5'8". And slowly over time, they keep getting taller to where... Basically, I think it's probably agreed at that he was about 5'10", 5'11". Mm-hmm. Arthur Lee Allen is six feet tall. And I feel like mm-hmm. a lot of times in Graysmith's book, he keeps conveniently forgetting that there were these other height descriptions of him and going back to the six foot tall person mm-hmm. saying that that's a good match when it wasn't always necessarily. Yeah. We have Arthur Lee Allen sit down and he has no clue why they are there. And they tell him that they're there for the Zodiac killings. And they ask him, Have you ever read or heard anything about the Zodiac? When it was first in the paper, but I didn't follow it after those first reports. Why not? Too morbid. And one important thing to point out is that Arthur Lee Allen tells them that he read the first few articles about it, but then he couldn't read about it anymore because it bothered him too much. So just keep that in mind. He stopped reading about it after the first couple of articles. That's what he says. And they say that they've had a confidential informant tell them some concerning things about him. And Arthur Lee Allen, in response to them being there and asking him various questions, he almost gives more information than necessary. They Mm -hmm. ask him about the Lake Berryessa murder and he says that he was there he was skin diving that he saw some people there he can give their names he saw his neighbor shortly after however the neighbor is conveniently dead neighbor's name Bill White he died a week or so afterwards he also says and this is one of the things he just brings about and they're all like what the hell the knives I had in my car with the blood on them that blood came from a chicken that I killed for dinner what And they're like, wait, this guy had bloody knives? Then he brings up that he previously talked to a police officer about the Lake Berryessa killings. I told all this to the other officer. Which other officer? From Vallejo. Do you remember his name? No, but it was right after the murder at the lake. They're like, who the hell did you talk to? Like, they're getting more information from him than they had before. And it is true. He did talk to a police officer, a guy named John Lynch. And apparently, this guy just didn't see him as a Zodiac killer. He thought he explained himself well. And he never did anything further with the guy. He never Mm -hmm. went any farther in investigating him or making a report about him or anything else. Then, it's also at this moment, they ask him, where were you living in 1966? And immediately, he says, Is this about the Riverside killing? Yes. 
So he immediately brings up the Riverside murders when they're just talking about where did you live in 66? And also, the important thing about this is the publication about the Riverside murders and what had been going on with that, that had happened about November of 1970. And he claims that he stopped reading about the Zodiac Killer after the first couple of articles, which started back in 1969, about a year before that. Mm -hmm. So why does he know about this? Is basically kind of what Robert Graysmith poses as a question in his book. The last thing that they notice is that you see Dave Toskey and he notices that Arthur Lee Allen is wearing this real specific watch he's never really noticed before. Uh, That's a nice watch. Thank you. May I see it? May I see it? Where'd you get it? It's a Christmas gift from my mother two years ago. That's very sweet. This is the first moment where Dave Toskey puts together that this watch is made by a company called Zodiac. It has a very specific mm-hmm. symbol that is a circle with a cross in it. And that the symbol that they've been seeing on all these letters, they're not necessarily a gun sight. It's possibly this symbol from this watch that this guy just thinks is cool. And yeah. when he compliments him on the watch, Arthur Lee Allen tells him that his mother gave him this watch for his birthday two years ago, which would have been December 1968. This is two days before the Betty Lou Jensen day David Faraday murder. And it's right. months before any of the letters come out where he uses the symbol and the Zodiac name. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end of this interview they have with him, he says, I look forward to the day when police officers are no longer referred to as pigs. He very specifically references the police as pigs, which is something mm-hmm. that Zodiac did all the time. After Toski, Armstrong, and Mullinex talk to Arthur Lee Allen, a few hours later, they speak with Arthur Lee Allen's brother, Ron Allen, and his wife, Karen. And both of them do admit that he does have issues with pedophilia. They also talk about how he writes, and they point out that he does do weird misspellings. This one. What about it? Here, where he spells Christmas with two S's. We got a Christmas card from Lee a couple of years ago. He spelled it the exact same way. And at some point, they ask him, What are your feelings about Don Cheney? Don Cheney, my old roommate. Is he the one who contacted you? That's confidential. Well, Don's a very reliable guy. If he were to tell you something, I might believe it to be true. So they're getting a pretty good lead on Arthur Lee Allen at this point. The problem is no judge will sign off on a search warrant for Arthur Lee Allen's home. Mm-hmm. And here's why. The person they need to sign off on the warrant, he will not sign it because he says that the claims of this person, Don Cheney, and the fact that his handwriting does not match the Zodiac letters is not enough. They need more information that will directly tie Arthur Lee Allen or give a reason why his handwriting will not match the Zodiac killer letters. After this happens, they're basically stuck. And about a year goes by where they can't do anything. And at some point, just for purposes of following up, Bill Armstrong calls Don Chaney and lets him know we are not able to get a warrant to further investigate Arthur Lee Allen because we don't have enough information. His handwriting doesn't match. And this is at the point where Don Chaney lets them know. Maybe he did it with his other hand. The letters are a little too neat for someone to have written with the wrong hand. Not for Lee, right? What do you mean? He's ambidextrous. He can write with either hand. Didn't you guys know that? 
And they take this to Sherwood Morrill. And they're like, is it a possibility his handwriting would be different if he was writing with the other hand? And Sherwood Morrill still does not agree with them. He says, even if he was writing with his other hand, his right hand is non-dominant, the handwriting is still going to be too different from what Zodiac is. So I'm not going to say at this point without a sample of it that it could possibly match. I mean, we know he's ambidextrous. In 38 years, I've never seen anyone that ambidextrous. Both ends would have commonalities. I'm sorry. Just not going to work. So they're mm-hmm. still stuck and they're pissed. And they really make Sherwin Morrill out to be this bad guy when the reality was he wanted to get the Zodiac just as much as everybody else. Yeah. Then in the midst of all this, they also were following up with Arthur Lee Allen's sister-in-law, Karen. And she tells them that he's not been doing well since they first started investigating him. And he's had to get help from a social worker. And during that time, Karen has actually spoken to the social worker. He couldn't talk about a former patient. So I just asked him straight out if he thought Lee was capable of killing people. Because of patient cover. The man said yes. Then they learn more information. They get information from a psychologist that says that it is possible that changes in your psychological behavior could lead to your handwriting becoming significantly different. And then we have another handwriting expert. And this handwriting expert's name is Terry Pascoe. And Terry Pascoe was a student of Sherwood Morals. And he mm-hmm. says, if the handwriting is significantly different when he writes with his right hand, it still could be the same person. Basically, Sherwood Morrill doesn't believe how your head is psychologically will change your handwriting. Terry Pasco is different in that he is agreeing with the psychologist saying that it can change your handwriting. So number one, we need to get his non-dominant hand in writing. But number Mm -hmm. two, just because it doesn't match right now doesn't really matter because we've got a social worker that's going to say he is extremely dangerous and has psychological issues. And we've got a handwriting expert that says this could change your handwriting. Mm -hmm. So this actually is enough. And they get a judge to sign off on it. And on September 14th, 1972, the police are able to execute a search warrant for Arthur Lee Allen's trailer. Mr. Allen, this is the Santa Rosa Police Department. We have a warrant to search your residence. He's not there when they first get there, but they go ahead and go in. And this is the weirdest freaking thing. He had squirrels, live and dead squirrels, everywhere in that damn apartment because he would study them. Arthur Lee Allen Mm -hmm. was basically described as a professional student. He was always going to school for something, but he never really had a job. And he had permission to test on these squirrels. And this was particularly concerning because whether or not he was the Zodiac Killer, he was a pedophile and little kids loved to come up to him to pet his squirrels. So I feel like that was also a reason why he had them. They go in and they find a jacket. Not one, but two blue windbreakers. I see. We'll have those checked for blood. They find two 22s. They find a rifle. Dave, I got a gun. Check that. Two guns. Both 22s, one automatic, one revolver. That's interesting. He happens to have an M1 rifle here in the closet. The little garlands bouncing off buses. And they find gloves. And a pair of Black gloves, men's seven, just like the ones we found in the cab. Well, he's got the same size shoes and gloves as he. Probably just a coincidence. This is also the time when they are finally able to get a handwriting sample from Arthur Lee Allen on his right hand. So the non-dominant hand that they did not have before. They make him write things out. 
Despite all of this, one of the key things that was a big deal about Arthur Lee Allen was that his mother lived in a house where he frequently would stay that had a basement. And the police, they never searched that basement. And the reason for not searching it is they didn't want to bother his elderly, sickly mother, which is ridiculous when he's claiming he has a death machine in a fucking basement. I mean, I get like not wanting to bother people, but sometimes we need to bother people. (laughs) I was, when I read that, I was so furious. Like, you've got threats of a death machine and you are not going to search the basement, but they don't search the basement. So they finally get all these things that they want. And we see Dave Toskey and Bill Armstrong and their captain is on the phone and they're waiting for Sherwood Morrill to look at the right hand handwriting sample that Arthur Lee Allen has given to tell them whether or not it is a match, along with all the other Mm -hmm. stuff that they have. The captain hangs up the phone and comes out to him and tells them it's not a match. It's not good enough. And they're devastated. Yeah. Dave Toski is so mad. He leaves the room and his captain's trying to calm him down. But you just see how personal this gets. Like Armstrong and Toski know each other better than they know their families. They are with each other all the time. Armstrong is always getting animal crackers for Toski. And you hear Toski say, Do you know what the worst part of this is? I can't tell if I wanted it to be Alan so bad because I actually thought it was him or I just want all this to be over. And you just yeah. realize at this moment that it's not even a little dead end. There is nothing else they can do with this person. Their case for this yeah. person is over and they need to move on. They say the ballistics don't match. The handwriting doesn't match and the print doesn't match. They took his prints when they did the search warrant and his prints don't match the print at the Paul Stein Presidio Heights murder. The stupid print on the cab. I think that it doesn't match the actual killer just because this print was used to disqualify so many people. And then in the letters, he said that he didn't leak prints and And we know that there were a lot of people around the scene. But I mean, also the ballistics, the guns that he has don't match and his handwriting doesn't match. Yeah. So it's not him, unfortunately. And they got to move on. We get a scene where we get some crossing between Toski and Graysmith. And they are both at a showing of Dirty Harry, which that movie was supposed to be based on the Zodiac Killer. And Mm -hmm. you see that Dave Toski can't be in there because he doesn't want to see the good guy win in the way that he wasn't. And you just see he's frustrated. Yeah, Robert Graysmith actually kind of notices Toski and knows who he is. So he goes out to sort of talk to him. Mm -hmm. And they have this kind of brief moment. Do I know you? I'm uh, Robert Graysmith. I work at the Chronicle with Paul Avery. Dave Tosky, nice to meet you. Dave, that Harry Callahan did a whole job in your case. Yeah, no need for due process, right? What do you do at the Chronicle? I'm a cartoonist. That's nice. You're going to catch him. Hell, I already make you movies about it. You can see that Toski is over it, but Robert Graysmith is still as curious as he was at the beginning of this. So he's still wanting to know more. Ultimately, the scene goes black, and then we get some on-screen text that says four years later. And after we see that four years later text, we get an image of Paul Avery. He is in his boss's office at the San Francisco Chronicle, and he is not doing well. And it is true that the Zodiac case really did a number on Paul Avery's health. He started getting really sick. And in this scene, it's just showing how paranoid he is. You wrote the Justice Department asking to be put in charge of the Zodiac investigation? I merely suggested on our letter that those with intimate knowledge of the case create an information clearing house to promote an exchange and free flow of ideas. And that you run it. Well, who better than me? The marked man. 
So his boss is furious at him. He's clearly got a drinking issue. We also get Toski dropping off Bill Armstrong. And it's kind of a weird scenario because we've always seen it the opposite way. Armstrong always drops off Toski and Mm -hmm. picks Toski up. And he always has his animal crackers ready for him. And this time we see them together. And Armstrong is insisting that Toski take the car. And then finally, Toski just says, why are you messing with our thing? (laughs) And Armstrong tells him, I'm not coming in tomorrow. What's up? I'm done. I put in for a transfer. Where? Looking at fraud. I can't be on call anymore. I want to see these kids grow up. Armstrong has never really spoken about the Zodiac Killer since then. He does not like to talk about it. And then he retired altogether pretty shortly after that. And one thing they don't show is Dave Toski also had a lot of health problems as a result of constantly working on this case. Mm. And you just see that everybody that has become involved in this case is now not doing well, except Robert Graysmith. Graysmith actually seems to be doing pretty well, but the thing that we don't realize is Graysmith has not really gotten too involved in the Zodiac Killer yet. And we see that he's now married to Melanie. Melanie, the girl that he went on the horrible first date with, they're now married and they've got some kids and he's looking through like a perfectly put together cutout scrapbook of Zodiac clippings. Like he misses it. He wants to know more. He misses the times when he got to look into that stuff. And then we also see him go to Paul Avery's house and he's trying to convince Paul Avery to write a book on this. I've been thinking. Yeah. Somebody should write a book. Somebody should write a fucking book. That's for sure. About what? About Zodiac. It's not new. I've been thinking that If you put all the information together, maybe you could jog something loose. And then I was thinking that nobody knows the case better than you. You know all the players and you, you have all the files. Then Paul Avery is pretty much just like, fuck you, I'm done with this. I don't want to do this anymore. Not that I haven't been sitting here idly waiting for you to drop by and reinvigorate my sense of purpose. It's four years ago, let fucking go. You're wrong. It was important. Then what did you ever do about it? If it was so fucking important, what did you ever do? You hovered over my desk. You stole from wastebaskets. Am I being unkind? And I mean, I wouldn't want to do it either. But this basically is the point where Graysmith gets in his head that he is going to be the person to write this book. And it's the first time we see him getting so absorbed in it that it's taking over his life. And it's just in little ways. The first time we see it is he's been at the library and comes home late and he forgets to tell his wife about it. But it's going to become more and more and more. And Dave Toski is still going to the corner of Washington and Cherry every year on October 11th when Paul Stein was murdered because he still hasn't figured it out. And at this point, it's 1977. So he's been going for several years now. We see him drive off and almost in the symbolic way as he's driving off from that corner, Robert Graysmith is showing up there. He's coming to the area. He's trying to see if he can figure out more about what went on with this case. And then we finally get both of our characters together again. We have Robert Graysmith, and he is arrived at the San Francisco PD office, and he has gone up to Dave Toski and introduced himself. And he basically is like, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but four years ago, we saw each other at a movie theater. Director Toski? Hi. Hi. Uh, we met at the movies once. You must have been magic. I'm Robert Graysmith. I work at the Chronicle. I was wondering if I could buy you lunch. Sure, why not? 
And he explains that he wants to try to write a book about Zodiac, to which Dave Toski says it's an open case. I can't tell you anything. Mm -hmm. He also points out... Mr. Graysmith, Zodiac hasn't written in three years. You know how many murders we've had in San Francisco since then? No, over 200. Four years? I thought that number was crazy low, which I guess that's not necessarily a good thing, but I was shocked by that number. Yeah. So clearly he sees this guy just wants to help. He's not in media. He's a political cartoonist. The only thing he wants out of this is just to kind of see if he can solve the mystery. So Dave Toski, whether he's supposed to or not, says, I can't allow you to help. I can't discuss the case with you. I can't give you information. And I certainly couldn't tell you to go see Ken Narlow in Napa. N-A-R-L-O-W. Look, I cannot tell you any information. I cannot tell you to go talk to Ken Narlo in Napa. And I cannot tell you to go talk to Jack Molinax in Vallejo, California. So he essentially tells him all the places to go where he can't tell him to. Mm -hmm. Then we see that Graysmith is talking to Jack Molinax in Vallejo, California. I understand what you're trying to do. This is an open police investigation. I'm a friend of Dave Toskey's. And he said that you might be able to help. I mean, the case is dead. Zodiac's long gone. He's yesterday's news, right? That's what they say. So what's the harm? And this is where he finally gets access to some Zodiac files. But what he's told is... No pens, no paper. Anything that you see that's relevant, better remember in your head. Okay. There is literally a storage room full of Zodiac boxes and he can look at whatever he wants, but he cannot write anything down. He cannot take anything with him. So we see him looking through just file after file after file. And then immediately he bolts out the door and he goes into a diner where there's a napkin so he can write down everything that he remembered. And as he's running out, you see these two cops looking at him and one of them asks, Who's that? It's Greasemith. Some cartoonist thinks he's going to solve the Zodiac. Well, good for him. Nobody thinks this is possible. Nobody thinks anybody can even put a dent in it. Right. We get a few scenes where Robert Graysmith basically is just kind of every once in a while meeting with Dave Toskey, calling Dave Toskey to kind of go over what he may know. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he points out is that he thinks that at some point, Darlene Farron, who was the victim in our July 4th murder at Blue Rock Springs, he thinks that she possibly might have known who this killer was because she had had a party shortly before and... And there was a guy there that was very weird that seemed to be worrying her. There was also notes that her sister had pointed out that Darlene was worried about somebody following her or harassing her near where she worked at her job at the diner. Darlene Farron was being followed. Now, I know Molnack says that they already found this guy at George Waters, but he also said that she had a lot of admirers who would come to the restaurant where she worked. She was popular. Very. Yeah, so, so they... She and her husband, they move into their new house, and, and one night they throw this painting party. What's a painting party? It, it's a party where people come and help you paint. Sounds like a terrible party. Well, supposedly, somebody who's not water shows up, and Darlene is terrified of him. So you think that Darlene knew Zodiac? And the other thing is, he thinks that if Darlene might have known this person, then Michael Majot, the survivor of that murder, might have known him too. And he needs to find Michael Majot so that he can see if he knew this person and describe what he looked like. But the problem is, as we stated earlier, even though Michael Majot survived, he disappeared. Nobody knew who where he was and he cannot find him. That's a dead end. He can't find him. We also see Robert Graysmith talking to Sherwood and Morrill and he is explaining to him how handwriting will not match one person to another. We choose at some point in our lives how to physically construct each letter. Once we lock that into our brains, our handwriting may change over the years, but the moves themselves remain unaltered. 
Understand? Yes. Except Zodiacs doesn't. Specifically with his K. In his first letters, he executed the K with two strokes. Later letters, he did them with three. Why? We don't know. At that same time, Robert Graysmith gets a weird phone call from an anonymous person saying that the Zodiac Killer is a guy named Rick Marshall. And someone that knows Rick Marshall is a guy named Bob Vaughn. And he will be able to help him learn more about Rick Marshall and more about why he thinks he's the killer. Who is this? The Zodiac Killer is obsessed with movies. He recorded his murders on film. I tried to tell the police, but they wouldn't follow through on it. There's a man you need to find. His name is Bob Vaughn. So he has this kind of in mind as he's going to talk to Sherwood Morrill. And his wife is not liking this at all. We actually get a point where there's an article published in the San Francisco Chronicle talking about how Robert Graysmith is going to be writing a book about Zodiac. And the wife points out, I'm not so sure that's something we want people to know about. Why, are you embarrassed? Robert, what's the one thing we know about Zodiac? He reads the Chronicle? Yeah, but he's never going to read Herb Cain. And like clockwork, Robert Graceman starts getting mysterious phone calls at midnight about once a week. And it's very likely that it's the person that he's pissing off who is the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, they're just like breathing, heavy breathing hang-up calls that he's getting. So as these hang-up calls are happening, Graysmith decides to investigate more about Rick Marshall. And this is really the one other person in this movie that they suggest could be the Zodiac Killer, besides Arthur Lee Allen, who is obviously the main suspect that they're very into. And there were plenty of people that were similar to this that could have easily mm-hmm. been the Zodiac Killer. I think that they put this person in there. It's just to show you that there's so many people that it could have been that we may never know. So what he learns yeah. is that Rick Marshall was a projectionist at a local movie theater that frequently played the movie The Most Dangerous Game. He's also able to get a hold of some posters that Rick Marshall had drawn, and he wants Sherwood Morrill to look at these posters and he wants him to see if they match. Sherwood Morrill looks at them and he says they do match. The one thing that concerns him is one letter doesn't match, which is the K. Most of the writing matches the exemplar. In a way, though, it's the part that doesn't match that scares me the most. Well, on the poster... The one letter that absolutely, positively does not match is the letter K. So Robert Graysmith thinks he's onto something. He learns from his anonymous source that not only did he like movies, not only did he like The Most Dangerous Game, but he also liked to film his murders and that this Bob Vaughn friend that can tell him more, he kept a canister for him that nobody knows what's in it, but he believes that it's going to be a filming of the murders or something like that. Mm. So finally, Robert Graysmith is able to get a hold of this Bob Vaughn guy. And in true scary movie form... He meets Bob Vaughn at the movie theater where they're going to talk about Rick Marshall and the Zodiac Killer and all this stuff. And Bob Vaughn says, Why don't we just go to my home? Oh, I I don't want to put you out. It's no trouble at all. Follow me to my house in the middle of nowhere. And Robert Graysmith's like, oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) That's the other thing is Jake Gyllenhaal as Robert Graysmith is so good at playing like this innocent child. Through the whole movie, you just see like he's never been in trouble in his life. He has no concept of safety or like this could be dangerous. They really, really hit that over the head. Right. 
And so they show up at this house with this Bob Vaughn guy that potentially knows this suspect. And they're talking about how he's trying to see if this canister that he left is still there. Bob Vaughn tells him that the canister is no longer there, that he had picked that up some years ago. Mm -hmm. And then he says, however, I do have a schedule of the times that we played the most dangerous game and if Rick Marshall would have been there when we played it. And as he's saying this, Robert Graysmith can't keep his damn mouth shut and starts talking about how the poster matches the Zodiac Killer's hand writing perfectly, to which Bob Vaughn made me, like, shit myself <laughs> as he says, Rick didn't draw any posters. No, he drew this one. Mr. Graysmith, I do the posters myself. That's my handwriting. Oh, no, Mr. Graysmith. He didn't write that. I did. And I yeah. was like, oh, my God, he's in there with a the killer. I would have run <laughs> out the door so damn fast. But instead, instead, and I should point out now, Robert Graysmith says this whole part is true. This entire thing I'm about to say happened. And he did not think to run out the damn door. He says that after he said that, he said, let's go down and see if I can find the schedule of when we played the most dangerous game. It's down in my basement. If we know anything about the Zodiac Killer, it's that he has a basement with a bomb in it. (laughs) So Robert Graysmith walks down the basement with him. As they're down in the basement looking for this schedule, he starts hearing people walking around upstairs and he hears water running. And he asks Bob Vaughn, Are you sure there's nobody else in the house? Would you like to go upstairs and check? And you're like, holy shit, there's another person there. Bob Vaughn is crazy. He's mm-hmm. the Zodiac killer. And it <laughs> ends with Robert Graysmith being like, I gotta go. And he runs out to the door and the door is locked. He can't get out of the house. It's locked with a key on the inside. Oh my gosh. So creepy. Bob Vaughn comes. I don't know if Bob Vaughn was fucking with him or not, but basically he comes and unlocks <laughs> the door. He never talks to Bob Vaughn again. I looked into Bob Vaughn specifically because I was very interested in the fact that his handwriting matched. Mm-hmm. And the problem mm-hmm. with Bob Vaughn was that he was older. He was an older man and he would have been too old for doing any of these killings at the time that the Zodiac Killer did. However, we see Robert Graysmith thinking out loud. We hear him and he's talking about there being two people involved. And I thought that was a very interesting point because it is possible that Bob Vaughn could have been writing these things and Rick Marshall could have been responsible for them. Another Mm -hmm. thing with Rick Marshall is he has really good ties in terms of locations to some of the suspected Zodiac Killer murders, but not the definite ones. So that's Mm. sort of the problem with Rick Marshall. It's not that the confirmed ones don't match. It's just that they're not as good and the more suspected ones that we don't necessarily think are the Zodiac Killer match. But there are quite a pair of those two. And Rick Marshall's print didn't match the one from the Stein case again. But as we said, we don't really know. Is that the Zodiac's print? Is that someone else's print at the Stein case? Yeah. Well, like I was talking about earlier, there were so many people at that scene. Mm -hmm. I think it's very possible that scene got contaminated. I just don't think that print is reliable. Yeah. So as Robert Graysmith is getting home and he's giving this idea that there were two killers, you see him open the door and you realize that nobody is in his house. I feel like this is sort of the first time that Robert Graysmith realizes he's dealing with dangerous shit. Like, where is his family? Where are they? And he kind of panics. Then you see a note on the kitchen door that says that the wife has taken the kids to her mom's. Basically, she's left him. She is not dealing with this dangerous shit anymore. So after this happens, we go back to Dave Tosky and it's April 25th, 1978. He's got a new partner. New partner doesn't get him. He doesn't have animal crackers. And he gets a page, basically. Unit 5. Tosky needs to call in all animal 
So he gets to a landline and he calls his captain and there has been a new Zodiac letter and he needs to get to the station right now. So Dave Toski bolts out and he gets to the station to see what's going on. And it basically references Dave Toski. It talks about how he's been working the case and he can't figure out who he is. This is the Zodiac speaking. I'm back with you. Tell Herb Kane I'm here. I have always been here. That city pig Toski is good, but I am smarter and better. He will get tired, then leave me alone. I'm waiting for a good movie about me. Who will play me? I'm now in control of all things. And Toski thinks that that's all this is about. This is where the problem comes in, because his captain is clearly not happy with him. His captain has HR with him. Something's not right. San Francisco Chronicle columnist Armistead Moffin says that he thinks not only is this new letter a forgery, but it was written by the very man trusted to hunt down this killer, David Toski. Moffat, a very well-respected author, has gone on record saying that he believes Toski wrote the letter to drum up publicity for himself. What's happened is the reporter that wrote this article that is now being referenced, he has come to the police suggesting that Dave Toski is the one writing these letters. And the reason he thinks it's Dave Toski is because several years ago, this reporter had written several articles that were fiction, and he referenced Dave Toski as like a character in these articles. Dave Toski ended up sending a bunch of letters to this reporter requesting that he bring the quote-unquote Dave Toski character back into his stories. Basically, Dave Toski had a weird I want to be famous moment where he was asking this reporter to put him back in his weekly stories or weekly columns. So the reporter thinks that Dave Toski is the one writing these letters for the same reason, to get attention. And it becomes a big problem. He's taken off a homicide. He's taken off of his case. He's transferred. It's all over the news. And the wife is devastated. Dave is devastated. And Robert Graysmith finds out about this and tries to talk to his wife to see what's going on. And Robert Graysmith still can't quite grasp that, like, he needs to have boundaries with these fucking people and what happens to them because he wants to talk to him and talk to him about Rick Marshall, the suspect. I'm sure that this will all blow over. They kicked him out of homicide. They made him give his handwriting like some common criminal. May I talk to him? No. Okay, can you just ask him if he ever investigated a man named Rick Marshall? Is that all you can think about? Mr. Graysmith, Muffin works at your paper. And Dave Toski is done. He hangs up the phone. A couple times, Robert Graysmith tries to catch him outside of the police station. He tells him, leave me alone. I am through with this. Who's gonna do it? Do you know what the chances of arresting someone are now? Too much time has gone by, okay? Too, too, too much of the evidence is lost. People get old, Robert. They forget. I have been a cop for 25 years. Murder police for 12. What do you do for a living? You know what I do for a living. You're a cartoonist. So what are you saying? I'm saying Zodiac was my job. It's not yours. And you are starting to see that Robert Graysmith is in the position that everybody else was in several years ago. He is going nuts with this case and everybody else is done with it. And he's lost his family because he's trying so hard to figure out how this all comes together. Mm -hmm. And we see him and he is going to visit a woman named Linda. This is Darlene Farron's sister. Darlene Farron was the woman that was murdered at the July 4th murder in Vallejo, California. And he's still on to this theory that whoever came killed Darlene might have known her. And, you know, he can't get to Michael Majot because he, nobody knows where he is, but there were reports that the sister mentioned that she was being bothered. Maybe she can mm-hmm. shed some light on who this person was. Specifically, there was a guy at a party that Darlene threw that might have had something to do with this. The party Darlene threw, people were supposed to just show up and drink beer and help paint, but this guy showed up in a suit and just sat in a chair all by himself all night long, didn't talk to anyone. 
And Darlene told me to stay away from him. She was scared of him. And a couple weeks later, she was dead. And she's in jail and trying to help her best, but you see how crazy Robert Graysmith is being. Do you remember his name? Um, I mean, it was short, like a nickname, like Stan. Rick? No, I don't think so. Are you sure? Yeah. How can you be sure? It's a long time ago. Think hard. I am thinking hard. It was Rick. No, it wasn't. It was Rick, it was Rick Marshall. No. Just say it. It wasn't Rick. He wants her to remember the name of this person. And he's saying, was it Rick? Was it Rick? Because he thinks it's going to be Rick Marshall. And she's like, no, no, that's not it. That's not it. And he's yelling at her saying it had to be Rick. And she looks right at him and goes, it's not. Like, he can't face reality. And he gives up. And as he is leaving, she turns around and says, it was Lee. Lee? Yeah, Lee. Sounds right. And Graysmith doesn't know this, but we, the viewer, know that Arthur Lee Allen frequently went by the name Lee. He didn't really go by Arthur. So this is something that we have connected, but Robert Graysmith has not connected yet. So then we get our next scene, and it's, again, fully showing how off the deep end Robert Graysmith has gone. And he's in his house, the house that he once shared with his wife and his kids, and it is covered in books and papers and files and boxes. It is a fucking mess. And his wife comes in, and basically she's delivering delivering their divorce papers. And she sees how crazy messy it is. And there's papers all over the floor. And you'll notice that she picks up a couple pieces of paper on the floor and she puts it under the divorce paper she's about to deliver to him. And she just says to him, The kids miss you. Can't see me like this. Neither can I. So do whatever you have to. Finish this. And she drops the papers right in front of him. And as she leaves, Robert Graysmith picks up the divorce papers, but he picks up those papers underneath and puts them on top. And you see that what she has picked up is a copy of Arthur Lee Allen's driver's license. And you see the wheels are turning in his head. You don't know why yet, but you know something is turning. So the next thing we see is it's Robert Graysmith in the middle of the damn night in the rain, pounding (laughs) on Dave Toski's door, his home. Is he actually here? I'm gonna kill him. This would scare the shit out of me. I think I actually had a crazy person on my hands, which... Dave Toski did. And he's like, I'm going to kill him. He's getting ready to go get a gun or call the cops. And you hear him yelling through the door. He hasn't opened the door and you hear him scream. It's Arthur Lee Allen. And this Mm. makes Dave Toski pause and he opens the door. Where'd you get that name? Called the Bill Ice house. December 69. I need to kill. Today's my birthday. It was his birthday. Arthur Lee Allen was born on December 18th. Arthur Lee Allen's name had not been out in public whatsoever. This guy that it was his favorite person for this crime. Right. He lets Robert Graysmith come in and they start talking about where they're getting this connection. One of the first things Robert Graysmith asks is killers typically like to insert themselves into their crimes, especially when they're being investigated. Has anybody ever contacted you willingly without you contacting them first? And he said, yeah, Arthur Lee Allen did. He was arrested January 1975 for molestation. He sent me that when he got out. Dear Dave, if I can ever be of any help to you, just let me know. I'm sorry I wasn't your man. And it's typewritten. And at this point, they've been talking for hours. You see them now. They're in a diner and the sun is coming up. The other thing that Graysmith points out is... Arthur Lee Allen and, and the Zodiac, their timelines. 
When was the first murder in Vallejo? Christmas 1968. Eight months before that, Alan is fired for molesting his students, and his family discovers that he's a pedophile. Now, when do the letters begin? July 69. After the murder of Darlene Farron, and they continue until you go to see him at work. Now, after that, do any of the letters contain swatches of Paul Stein's shirt? No, because he dumped him because he got scared because he knew that you were onto him. The other thing he points out is... Then in 74, he feels comfortable again because everybody's moved off Alan as a suspect. And what do we get? Three new letters from Zodiac in January, May, and July in 74. But then the letters stop. What happens to Alan? He's arrested. January 1975, they send him to a Tascadero. We don't get another letter from Zodiac the entire time he's there. And finally, Arthur Lee Allen lived 500 yards from where Darlene Farron worked at the diner. And then Arthur Lee Allen was living in his mother's basement. And the person that was at the party that was concerning Darlene that she talked to her sister about, his name was Lee, as Linda, Darlene's sister, pointed out to us in jail. Essentially, what Dave Toskey tells Robert Graysmith at the end of this conversation is that he believes, just as much as Robert Graysmith does, that Arthur Lee Allen is their guy. The problem is they don't have any direct evidence to prove it. It's too circumstantial. It's too attenuated. Your expert witness won't back it up, and your DA certainly isn't going to back it up. Mm -hmm. And what Dave Toskey says, his final words to Robert Graysmith are... Finish the book. Basically, put him on trial before the public through this book. And that's the last scene we have of them two together. And he walks off, the screen goes blank, and we get some more on-screen text. And this time, it is 1991. We are now years later. We're in Vancouver, Canada, and we're in an airport, which is kind of unusual. And you see on a book stand several copies of a book for sale, and it's called Zodiac. And it says by Robert Graysmith. And this is the actual book Robert Graysmith did write that this movie is based on. And then you see a guy that is clearly a police officer or something, and he's asking a security guard for help to find a place private, and he leads him into a little employee break room. Then we see a very roughed up guy, and you don't realize it at first, but this is Michael Majot, the young Michael Majot at the very, very beginning of the movie that survived the attack that ended up murdering Darlene Farron. He's here, and he's being led into this little employee break room as well. And we learn through him coming into the break room that this guy that he's meeting, this guy that looks like he might be law enforcement that's in a suit, he is from the Vallejo PD. And he is there to have Mike Majot look at a photo lineup to see if he can identify the person that attacked him and killed Darlene Farron. And Michael Majot says, It's been 22 years. I don't know how I can help you. Well, this is just a formality. I'm going to show you a group of photographs. Now, the person that shot you may or may not be among these photographs. You don't have to pick anybody out just because I'm showing you these pictures, you understand? Uh, yes, sir, I do. And he looks at the different lineups. And also, I should point out now, this is not how a photo lineup is done. It's very possible that it was done this way at the time, but it's not how it's done now. You don't put all the pictures out in front of each other. And the reason you don't do that, you start comparing the people to each other. So you're not comparing what you saw to the person in front of you. You start comparing the people beside each other. And Michael Mm -hmm. Majot almost does that. You had a round face like this guy. Wait, am I to understand that you're now identifying the second photograph? No, I'm just that you had a round face like that. But one of the mugshots is one of Arthur Lee Allen, and he says that this is the person. And then they ask him... Now, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being positive... How sure are you? At least an 8. Last time I saw this face was July 4th, 1969. 
I'm very sure that's the man who shot me. And the movie kind of ends from there. However, there are some things we need to talk about. First, let's get into Michael Majot's identification. Back when Michael Majot was attacked and was in the hospital and police spoke to him, they did have him give a description of the Zodiac Killer. And the problem was they did not have Michael Majot do a lineup because they did not think that he saw enough to do one. They asked him, do you think you would recognize him if you saw his face? And Michael Majot said, maybe if I saw his profile. So seeing a head-on shot of the Zodiac Killer or whoever they think it might be, it's not going to be as accurate as what they're hoping for. The other thing is, like Michael Majot says, it's been 22 years since his attack happened. And as we saw as he was walking in, this Zodiac Killer book has been out in the open, which is very, very blatantly pointing to one person. Now, granted, the person that it's pointing to, Arthur Lee Allen, he was given a pseudonym in the book, but it was very quickly determined who the real person was. And Arthur Lee Allen, people really thought he was the Zodiac Killer for the rest of his life, whether he was or wasn't. I'm not saying he's a good guy, but he was found guilty by the media pretty immediately. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying Michael Majot's lying by any stretch of the imagination, but when that face keeps being put in your face at different places in the media, I'm sure it gets more difficult to remember what you saw versus what you've been seeing. The yeah. other thing has to do with the birthday call. Melvin Belli's housekeeper answering the phone on December 18th, stating that the Zodiac Killer said he needed to talk to Melvin Belli and that it was his birthday. That is what Robert Graysmith says happened. And a lot of that is based on what Melvin Belli said in his own book. He said that his housekeeper was called before he left and that birthday call happened before he left and went out of the country. However, Bill Armstrong talked to that housekeeper and then he immediately sent a message to the FBI regarding that conversation. And the date that he lists as the day that this call came through where the Zodiac Killer stated it was his birthday, it was January 14th. It was not on December 18th. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, the way they ended up figuring out that the person that called the news and wanted to be on the morning show with Melvin Belli was a person from a mental hospital, it was through tracing calls to Melvin Belli's house. Because like we said earlier, when they were at the news station, they needed 15 minutes to trace the call. And they don't really explain this well. They did not trace the call from the news, but what they started doing was tracing calls to Melvin Belli's house. And when that call came in, that's how they traced it back to the person in the mental hospital and determined he was the person calling. So there's a controversy as to whether or not the person called on December 18th or if they called January 14th and which date they were referring to as their birthday. There's a possibility that it was not someone whose birthday was December 18th that was calling. But this movie ends with the idea, as was the idea in Robert Graysmith's book that Arthur Lee Allen was the Zodiac Killer. And Mm -hmm. we get some on-screen text at the end and it says that the Vallejo PD was getting ready to prepare a search warrant to go into Arthur Lee Allen's house. And just before they were able to do that, Arthur Lee Allen died of a heart attack. And he actually, he had been very, very ill for a while. He had diabetes, he had failing kidneys and then ultimately died. And then we see that Robert Graysmith claims that the mysterious calls he was getting about once a week at the time that he was investigating the Zodiac Killer, those stopped after Arthur Lee Allen died. So in 2002, they did a partial DNA profile from a Zodiac envelope that was 33 years old, and that did not match Allen's DNA. But San Francisco and Vallejo refused to rule out Allen as a suspect based on that alone. And Robert Graysmith has said, and I think this is a good point, he talks about how that stamp was not kept in conditions to be properly tested for DNA. So even if we found anything, whether it matches or not, it's not necessarily a good comparison because it's been in heat, it's been in cold, it hasn't been preserved, so it's not necessarily going to give us any good results. Right. 
Dave Toski kept saying, per Robert Graysmith, that he believed that Arthur Lee Allen was the Zodiac Killer. But ultimately, in 2010, he made some statement that everything that they thought could have made Arthur Lee Allen the Zodiac Killer had been ruled out, and so it couldn't have been him. Then in 2018, they announced that they were going to try to use that same DNA from that stamp to see if they could use familial DNA and catch the Zodiac Killer in the same way that they caught the Golden State Killer. And Mm -hmm. the problem with that, or at least to me, is kind of what we just said. That DNA wasn't stored properly, so how the heck, even if we get a match, are we going to know if it's a proper result? So I have issues with that. Ultimately, I don't think any of the eyewitnesses are good eyewitnesses. I don't think anybody got a good look at him. The heights have varied from 5'8 to 6 feet. We've had the weight vary. We've had his hair color vary from gray to brown. So I just don't think any of them are going to be useful. And you talk about eyewitnesses being the least reliable source of evidence. This is one instance where it's very not reliable. Yeah. And I mean, if you just look at the Wikipedia for the Zodiac Killer, there's so many suspects that it's like, there were so many creepy people doing shady shit that it's like, oh, well, it could have been him. He was around there. could have been him. And then it kind of brings me to that theory again that one, that the Zodiac took credit for murders he didn't do. Two, that possibly people were committing murders and then pretending to be the Zodiac because some of the letters didn't quite match. Not all of them were handwritten. Some of them had cut out newspaper prints. Some of them were typewritten. So in my mind, it seems more reasonable that this wasn't just one person and that all the confusion around who is this one person has made it so that we're not catching any of these people. Yeah. Someone's going to get mad at me for saying this. I think if <laughs> if Arthur Lee Allen was put on trial for this, I'd probably find him not guilty. And here's why. Don't yell at me. <laughs> I'm not saying he's a good guy. He's a fucking pedophile. He is not a good person. But I don't think there's enough to say it was him. And, you know, a lot of times I found myself, even as I was watching the movie and researching everything, I found myself wanting it to be him because I wanted a solution. And I found myself thinking things like, well, handwriting is not a reliable source of evidence. Why are they going in so deep on the handwriting? But at the same time, I think about a different case. I think about something like Robert Durst and the Jinx, if you're familiar with that documentary series. And basically, Basically, in that murder, you don't need to know about it, but there was a situation where there was handwriting on an envelope that they found years later that perfectly matched him. And immediately in my head, I was like, the handwriting, the handwriting matches, it's him. So, you know, I'm going against my own thoughts about what can be good evidence and what can't be. And I think in this case, there's been enough people to say it's not the same handwriting. Some of the stuff that I think makes it really seem like it's Arthur Lee Allen, like the Zodiac Watch, the most dangerous game lines then I realized, well, realistically, more than one man had a Zodiac watch and more than one man has seen the most dangerous game. And it was very popular to assign that as like high school reading, like you said. So it's weird, like the things where I'm like, yeah, but that's too many coincidences, but they're also not things that are unique to one person. Yeah, I agree. And I think one thing that everybody seems to forget, this is going to get cheesy, I'm sorry. One thing that people seem to forget as you're watching the movie, as you're researching this, as you're making your podcast, is that this wasn't a game for the people that this happened to and the families of the people that this happened to. They have no clue what happened to their loved ones. And Mm -hmm. I just... It's a great movie. I loved the movie. I think it's a very interesting story. At this point, I think it's more important to remember the people that this happened to rather than figure out or remember the person that it could have been. Yeah. So... 
And I think the beauty of this movie is the attention to detail because they had access to case files. So like the Zodiac letters actually look like the real Zodiac letters. The writing on the car looks exactly like the writing on the car. And just getting those types of details right more than, like you said, focusing on who is the Zodiac. Yeah. You know what? That is the story and the movie Zodiac. So what are we doing next week, Grace? Next week, we are doing The Frozen Ground. This is our second request. This was requested by my friend Mitchell and his wife, Karen. It's about the Alaskan baker serial killer. This should be an interesting one. It's Nicolas Cage, so it's going to be very Nicolas Cagey. It'll be fun. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. This was a long one. Hopefully it will all come together in your heads because my brain's about to explode. We will see you next week. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at, at Crime Scenes Pod. Also, we have merch now, so you can click the link in our Instagram to get to our merch. It's also on our website. We've got t-shirts, tank tops, mugs, stickers, towels, and we also have our Buy Me a Coffee. You can also get the link to that on our Instagram or at buymeacoffee.com slash crime scenes pod. And that's just a little way to support us if you like what you're hearing. All righty. We'll see y'all next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. Michael Majot is played by Lee Norris, who is Minkus from Boy Meets World. I, honest to God, didn't think that was different. I thought that was Minkus. No, it's a totally different guy. Jake Gyllenhaal is always, I just always see him as like someone's little brother. Yeah. He's older than me, but I'm always just like, oh, you're just so cute. I always think of him as like a little compact man, but I guess he's like over six foot tall. Really? Yeah. Oh my God. I thought he was like kind of a Tom Cruise situation. Now I'm, 